for AZPM. I'm Paola Rodriguez, filling in for Mark McElmore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, NPR Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep is a familiar voice, and he now has a new book about Abraham Lincoln. Mexican culture meets Chinese culture at the Tucson Chinese Chorizo Festival. Adiba Nelson interviews musician and producer Nabil Ayers on his debut book, My Life in the Sunshine, a journey that is in search of his roots. And Chris DeShield provides a preview of some of the hidden gems that are a part of Film Fest Tucson 2023. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. In 2004, NPR's Steve Inskeep became the host of Morning Edition. But conducting interviews and telling stories on the radio is not the only thing Inskeep does. He is also an author, having penned books on President Andrew Jackson and the city of Karachi. He is out with a new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. Inskeep recently chatted with AZPM's Christopher Conover about the book. There have been a lot of biographies of President Lincoln written. This one's a little different. What made you decide to take this approach using a series of vignettes, if you will, through his older political career. Thank you for noticing the difference. Uh, My starting point was just what you said. Thousands of people have written books about Abraham Lincoln. What could I possibly say that is new or, or different? And I came to focus on these 16 meetings with people who differed with them, who were from a different background, a different class, a different race, a different gender, or mostly disagreed with him, had a different opinion, thought he was wildly wrong, and he thought they were wrong. Um, And I felt that those meetings would speak to Lincoln's character. They would speak to his political style. You see him in action, the same way you'd see an athlete on the field. And I felt that those meetings would also speak to now, because we are having so much trouble talking to one another. It did have a strong reflection of our time right now. I found one of the ones, uh, the vignettes I found particularly interesting was uh, his meetings and continued relationship with the man who became his secretary of state, Mr. Seward, Um, and, and Mr. Seward's role as editor, as you put it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite uh, favorite stories in there. I mean, I love them all, honestly. Some of the people in this book are super famous. Some of them are much less so. Seward is one of the more famous ones. He was a leader of the Republican Party, a guy who thought he was going to be nominated for president, and Lincoln got the nomination instead, which enraged William Henry Seward of New York. Um, Lincoln did then make him his top person in his cabinet, as secretary of state. And during the presidential transition, they had to figure out how to get along with each other. Um, And it is uh, a fascinating story to watch their letters back and forth because so much of their correspondence has survived. You can get their actual words. Lincoln handed Seward a draft of his inaugural address and said, can you comment on this a little bit if you see anything right or wrong? And, And he'd shown other people who 
suggested that he change a phrase or change a word. Seward said, this looks great. It's a brilliant and strong argument. I have only three problems, the beginning, the middle, and the end. And so he had a million suggestions for this inaugural address. And Lincoln did not get upset at this, uh, didn't have any particular display of ego. He tried to take a cool view of Seward's suggestions and his wisdom and decide which of these edits to take. And in fact, he did take a number of Seward's suggestions, and it was one of the events that began their relationship together, in which Seward was always kind of trying to be president, trying to reach out and, and run the other cabinet departments besides his own, and kind of be the, the person who's really steering the ship of state. And Lincoln would take his energy and take his smarts when it suited him and turn him aside other times. Let me go back to how you picked your characters, your vignettes, if you will, because as you said, some of them are very well known. Some of the people no one's ever heard of before. How did you, of the thousands of people Lincoln dealt with over his time, how did you pick these 16? Uh, I did a couple of years of research, and there were a lot of people that I picked and then unpicked their entire chapters that I pulled out of the book. I, I wanted what was there to be really focused and to tell the range of his life story and range of experiences, and I wanted them to be diverse. One of my first thoughts about this book was Lincoln's face-to-face -face meetings with a diverse group of Americans, because I thought that would show how incredibly diverse the country was then as it is now, even though this was a period, of course, when white men had, had all the power and virtually all the voice. Um, there, there were all kinds of people, and also like all kinds of classes of people and backgrounds of, of people and so forth. And so I wanted a diverse group of people. And then I realized that the essence of this story and what's most relevant to now is the differences between people. And how did Lincoln navigate those differences? People who were pro-slavery, people who thought that he was insufficiently anti-slavery, people who were anti-immigrant or way off on a different political tangent or who were a different race or a different gender, had a totally different agenda. How could he deal with them? And sometimes in this book he fails. Honestly, it's not always possible. Sometimes he gets people to agree. Often he doesn't get people to change their mind about anything, but he figures out some way to make some advantage of the situation. Yeah, when you talk about the failure, I, I think of the the chapter, the story of Lean Bear. The uh, yeah, and it ends tragically, um, as though maybe Lean Bear agreed with you know understood what Lincoln was saying, and then is killed. Uh, Lean Bear being a, a Native American tribal leader. Yeah. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, that's, I mean, in many ways, this uh, possibly the saddest chapter in the book. Um, uh, Lean Bear was a Cheyenne leader from what became very soon afterward the state of Colorado. He was invited as part of a tribal delegation to go to the White House and meet the president. He gave an eloquent speech to the president in which he said, uh, we're near war out in Colorado, and the problem is white settlers. Uh, who are causing trouble all the time and taking our land and, and harassing us. Um, and Lincoln's message was, we need peace, we need peace. Uh, Lincoln wanted, it's during the Civil War and he's president, he wanted peace in the West because he needed to focus on the rebellion against the South or fighting the South. And the, in needing peace, he invited the wrong people to the White House. Uh, tribal leaders were invited and told to be calm and be peaceful. They already were for the most part. The real problem was the white settlers. Lincoln needed to invite a different group of people to the White House. That was a failure on his part. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Christopher Conover talked with Stephen Skeep. His new book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. The month-long Tucson Chinese Chorizo Festival is back for its second year. Spotlight's Leah Britton sat down with festival founder Fun Fun Ya to talk about the festival and its marrying of Mexican and Chinese cultures. My name is Fun Fun Ye, and I am the brainchild of Tucson Chinese Chorizo Festival, which is part of Chinese Chorizo Project. What is the Chinese Chorizo Project? Yeah, so the Chinese Chorizo Project is a proposal that I came up with um, about two years ago that I submitted to the MOCA Tucson and the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Night Bloom grant. And it's a project that uplifts the story of Chinese and Mexican immigrants during the early 1900s through the 1970s. And it talks about community solidarity and coming together when times are difficult. How does that historical context play into the festival's mission? Yeah, so the mission of the festival is to kind of like have culinary innovation, but to also have that as a carrier for um, historic preservation and education. So what can our audience expect from the Chinese Chorizo Festival? Yeah, so the way that it works is a Chinese Chorizo Project donates um, amounts of Chinese Chorizo to the different restaurants that are participating. And each of these restaurants create their own dish featuring the Chinese Chorizo. Um, and so you can kind of like do a Chinese Chorizo crawl and go to all these different restaurants and see what kind of dishes that each restaurant comes up with. And I think it's it's very fun to kind of like compare and see, you know, um, the different inspirations, especially with the different cuisines. Um, so it's a pretty fun thing. And I think it's gonna get competitive after a while because last year I kind of felt that I had some chefs ask me like, oh, what did that restaurant do? And like, tell me if you want a competition. <laughs> Everyone wants to have the best yeah. chorizo. <laughs> yeah. What is Chinese chorizo? What makes it unique from other chorizo? Yeah, so it's so funny because a lot of people ask me what Chinese chorizo is, and they assume that it's like um, lap chong, which is that like, you know, dried, sweet Chinese sausage. But Chinese chorizo is a specific lost historic food um, that once was a highly sought out after food from some 100 plus Chinese grocery stores that once existed here in Tucson. So it's specific from Tucson and it's a food invention that was created by Mexican and Chinese immigrant solidarity. So it was these scraps of meat that was, um, you know, things that were kind of destined for the trash, end cuts, things that were going to spoil, and whatever meat that was on hand. And it was revived with Mexican spices and chilies and red wine and turned something that was, you know, scraps and something that wasn't meant for consumption into something that was like very highly sought out after. I just thought that was like a beautiful kind of metaphor for immigrant resilience. That sounds delicious. Yeah. How is it made differently today? 
So today we used the original recipe, um, which I found on the Tucson Chinese Cultural Center website. There's like a original recipe there. And I'm sure that it wasn't like a one specific hard edged recipe that everyone used. I think it was just like whatever was made on hand. So I used that kind of as a skeleton guide for us. And I took it to Maria Mazan and Jackie Tran. And I said, hey, let's make some chorizo for today. So I asked Maria to help to make a mushroom chorizo so that, you know, we kind of like reach more people with this story and with the food. And I asked Jackie Tran to help with the pork chorizo. And we really like came with these two recipes. And last year we launched it and it was a huge success. You mentioned some names that are popular around in Tucson. Who else is involved in this festival with you? Well, this year, there's a lot of players involved. And I didn't imagine that it would get this big. It's just the community, I think, was really excited about um, last year's festival. So it was really exciting to kind of like hear from... Um, you know, organizations that I've been dying to work with, like um, the Museum, um, Tucson Museum of Art, MoCA Tucson, also like some of my friends, um, my friends that are doing the Party Queer AF, and that's really exciting to be able to collaborate with that community, especially since I come from a queer food community in New York. So it's fun to kind of like marry those two communities together here. See, we've had Queer AF on the show in the past, and we've featured their pride brunches, and we talked about their mission of bringing the community together. How do you think bringing together all these Tucson entities creates kind of a unique experience? I just think, like, community collaboration is just the key to life, really. Like, it's the key to happiness um, because you need community when you're happy you need community when you're sad and going through things um it's just like it's the nourishment that we need so just like and also for creativity too like to spark new ideas and to talk about how we should be living in the future and how to achieve our dreams really like i'm so grateful to this community because i'm able to do this tell this story and do all the crazy ideas that I want to because everyone is supporting. That was Spotlight's Leah Britton talking with the founder of the Tucson Chinese Chorizo Festival. The 2023 Humanities Festival invites an array of guests to present at the University of Arizona. This year, the theme is style. Adiba Nelson spoke with musician, producer, and first-time author Nabil Ayers. Ayers runs the control group Valley of Search record label, which has released music from The Killers, PJ Harvey, and his uncle, jazz artist Alan Brofman. His debut book, My Life in the Sunshine, explores his search to find his roots. His father, jazz vibraphonist Roy Ayers, has never been a part of Nabil's life. In this excerpt, 
from My Life and the Sunshine, Ayers describes his mother Louise's choice before he was conceived in 1971. People have asked my mother how it felt that my father left her, and her response was always that he didn't leave her. She intentionally picked someone who was married to his career and was completely unavailable. She describes her pregnancy as something remarkably positive, something that happened because of love. People have also asked me how I feel about my mother's decision to have me, knowing that my father wouldn't be involved. Her decision was unquestionably selfish, one that would shape my entire life. But for a long time, rather than admitting that to anyone who asked, I focused on the positives. My mother took a huge risk, hoping that Roy's best qualities, his kindness, his talent, and his magnetism would transfer to me, and that I wouldn't inherit or experience what she saw as his worst qualities his unreliability, his self-centeredness. But she never concerned herself with the variables that she couldn't control. Instead, my mother set out to give me a wonderful childhood, raising me in safe, supportive environments and challenging the traditional definition of family. And for a long time, that was good enough for me, until it wasn't. Nabil, the title of your new book, My Life in the Sunshine, immediately made me think of the Mary J. Blige album, My Life, where the intro to the entire EP is, my life, my life, my life, ain't no sunshine. Can you tell me a little bit about where you got the title for your book? Yeah, I mean, my book is named after the original version of the song, uh, which is called Everybody Loves the Sunshine, and it's written and performed by my father, Roy Ayers. So Mary J. Blige's version is a cover of that song, and mine comes from the original from 1976. Would you describe your life as being perpetually sunshiny? Uh, maybe not perpetually, but but I think often sunshiny. I mean, so that's the very literal version of the book title. And then the less literal version, and, and why I love the title and was happy to use it, is that I've never known my father, Roy Ayers. I grew up completely without him. My mother had me deliberately with his consent, but he was never meant to be part of our lives. Mm-hmm but he still had a lot of influence over me. He's a musician. I'm a musician. He's a very public-facing figure, so I've always sort of seen him out there. I hear that song all the time, arguably more than ever now, almost 50 years later. So that part of the title for me is very much about me having this great life, which my father wasn't really a part of, but also kind of was in a much smaller way. And and yeah, it, it's about maybe not perpetual sunshine, but a lot of sunshine. I never felt like there was an absence. But when I got older and was in my 30s, um, I finally decided it was time to meet him. I wanted to know some medical history. I wanted to know more about my family and my ancestors. So I was finally able to have this incredible lunch with him. And it was really connective, and I realized how much we actually had in common and how crazy it was to sit across from him and see him laugh the same way that I laugh and all these sort of interesting connective traits. But ultimately, after that, it was very hard to get a hold of him, and he clearly didn't have interest in in developing that relationship. And that's kind of really when I went on this quest, realizing that he couldn't help me learn more about my family, but that that didn't need to stop me. And I really did a lot of work to connect with lots of other people on his side of the family, and it's been incredibly rewarding. Now, from what I read, you made some pretty interesting discoveries when you went on this quest to find out more about your family. It's ongoing, but, and and, I mean, a lot of it has come as a result of the book, which has been pretty incredible, and which is a lot of the reason I'm still doing so many book tour events and speaking in different cities is because a lot of the time people come out who are maybe cousins or maybe some of his bandmates from the 70s. I've really met so many people 
that I have some kind of connection to. But but in the book, um, yeah, I do 23andMe. That's kind of my, I can't get any more information from my father, so I'm going to see what this does. And that connected me with a cousin who gave me a copy of the Heirs Family Tree, which really opened up a lot of information that goes back to one enslaved man in Alabama in 1824. And this is something I knew nothing about. I, I knew nothing beyond my father's parents' names. And suddenly, I was sitting here looking at a printed book that had five generations of my family and stories about each of them and pictures of each of them. So it really, really told me a lot and uh, and just was it's been this fascinating journey that is still ongoing. So what was the most interesting or shocking thing that you discovered while you were writing Sunshine and after you did the 23andMe? I find the information about my enslaved ancestor, and I'm trying to research him more online, and not surprisingly, can't really find anything. But what I do find is some info about the person who was his owner, and pretty quickly, kind of accidentally, on this website, discover a woman who I believe is the owner's living descendant. And I decide to email her. Her name is Karen, amazingly. And I sent her this sort of very friendly email five years ago, and I said, hi, you know, I think we might be related in a very strange way. I have no ill will. This wasn't your fault. I don't want anything from you. I'm just looking for information. Can you help? And she got right back in touch, and we've been really good friends ever since. And she hasn't done a DNA test. I'm convinced that we're actually blood relatives, which I think will be a really interesting thing to, to learn someday. But I also like the fact that it doesn't really matter, that we have the strangest connection, and we sort of acknowledge it. And she very much feels like a family member to me. Wow. That is pretty wild. Yeah. So you were determined one way or another to get down to your roots. Like if dad was not going to help you, you were going to get there some way. So you're going to be here at the Humanities Festival at University of Arizona, and the theme is style. How are you incorporating mm. that into your talk? I think I'm hoping to incorporate that into my talk with music. I have a playlist that I really love that I would like to play before and after. And of course, during the talks, will be there. it's like a sort of, I don't want to call it a multimedia presentation, but there are some slides, there's some video, there's definitely some music. So to me... The sort of, of course, it's nice to hear someone talk and someone read, but it's important to have some music to kind of set the vibe and, I guess, dictate the style. So that's what I'll be doing. Okay, so I thought I had one last question, but I'm also an audiophile, <laughs> so I need to know who's on this playlist. But this playlist is very much centered around Roy Ayers, not him as a person, but around the sort of period of music that I love most of his, which is the 70s. So it's a lot of 70s funk very positive stuff. Um, Stevie Wonder, of course, Roy Ayers, Minnie Ripperton, Sly and the Family Stone, Gil Scott Heron. It's a lot of really positive 70s music that I either loved as a kid or should have loved as a kid. Adiba Nelson talked with Nabil Ayers. Ayers will speak on Tuesday, October 17th at 7 p.m. at the UA Poetry Center. You can find a link to all of the 2023 Humanities Festival events on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. When we asked film essayist Krista Scheel to look into this weekend's Film Fest Tucson, it was like giving him the keys to a candy store. Film Fest Tucson organizer Herb Stratford was quick to supply to Scheel with screening copies of many standout offerings, from drama to documentary, both full-length and shorts from contemporary to classic, and he chose to talk about three titles. Films that might get to light up on many marquees, 
but he thinks that are worthy of your attention. Film Fest Tucson is back, one of the many great film festivals happening every year in our cinema-loving city. This year's edition is presenting over 20 features and shorts, along with special events, at four downtown venues, scheduled from October 12th through the 14th. I was able to view a small selection of festival offerings, which I hope will convey some of its flavor. In my experience, the choice of movies at FilmFest has been consistently superior. A Bunch of Amateurs is the title of a documentary by Kim Hopkins on a subject dear to my heart, amateur filmmaking. It's a portrait of the oldest amateur filmmaking club in the UK, the Bradford Movie Makers in Northern England's West Yorkshire area. There used to be many amateur groups in earlier film history, but now they seem to be dying off. Most of the Bradford filmmakers are getting on in years, and there aren't enough new members to help the club thrive. We get to meet all the people in this little group, and they are an assortment of lovable characters. We follow one elderly man's efforts to recreate the opening sequence of the film Oklahoma, where he gets green-screened onto a horse in a local farm, riding along and singing, Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Another team films a version of the old Sufi tale, Appointment in Samara, in which a man encounters the angel of death in a local market. But the story is reset in England to humorous effect. A man tends to his ailing wife in a nursing home while also working as the club's handyman and custodian. These people's love of movies is bigger than just watching them. They want to make them. But when COVID hits in 2020, a bunch of amateurs shows them having to deal with their biggest challenge of all. Peak Season is a charming little indie romance by Stephen Cantor and Henry Lovner. It's about a New York couple, engaged to be married, taking a vacation at a beautiful home owned by his family in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The young man, who comes across as a work-driven yuppie, is suddenly called away by business, leaving his fiancée Amy, played by Claudia Restrepo, alone for a week. Circumstances cause her to meet Lauren, a fishing instructor and wilderness guide played by Derek Joseph de Blasis. Lauren is a kind of vagabond who's chosen an independent lifestyle, doing an assortment of odd jobs in the area to support himself, and actually living in his SUV with his dog. Amy gets fishing lessons, goes on hikes with him, and finds herself continuing to seek his company because, as it turns out, she likes this guy and feels very comfortable interacting with him, the trouble being that she gradually starts to feel an emotional connection that she has not felt with her fiancé. Although the movie sometimes feels like a commercial for the beautiful Wyoming landscape, the story succeeds in being rather touching. This is not some simplistic Hallmark movie. These two were understandably hesitant about getting involved. The success of Peak Season is largely due to the performance of the young actress Claudia Restrepo, who is remarkably natural and affecting. My third selection is another documentary, this one on a bigger scale. The Hong Konger is a profile of Jimmy Lai, who escaped from poverty in China to Hong Kong when he was a teenager and gradually advanced to the top of the garment industry there. Later, he moved into journalism, creating Apple Daily, Hong Kong's popular pro-democracy newspaper. The film provides a history of Hong Kong, its growth and importance, and the events leading up to the so-called handover of this British colony back to China in 1997, followed by the dire and unfortunately predictable results. China had promised to preserve Hong Kong's autonomy, 
but it betrayed that promise, resulting in the huge free speech demonstrations that the world has witnessed in our current century. Jimmy Lai is a rich man, and he could have left and lived in luxury anywhere he wanted, but courageously, he stayed in Hong Kong and helped lead the protests. Beijing shut down Apple Daily in 2021, and Jimmy Lai is in prison, facing a possible life sentence for the crime of advocating for freedom in Hong Kong. The Hong Konger is both inspiring and sad, a call to the world to demand freedom for Jimmy Lai and his beloved city. So there's a taste of what's screening at FilmFest Tucson this year. Go to filmfesttucson.org for more info. I hope to see you there. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Chris DeShield. Find a link to the FilmFest Tucson schedule on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm Paola Rodriguez in for Mark McElmore. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.